you'll take your Bible with me this morning, and if you'll open to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I issued a challenge to you last week. I hope that you're working on it with me. I know I'm working on it. Mary's working on it. And that is to memorize these 10 verses. And um, these are the Beatitudes. If you can't get all 10 verses, if you can get from verse 3 to verse 10, uh, you'll get all the Beatitudes uh, together. One of the greatest challenges is just getting them in order. You know, poor in spirit, and then you mourn, and then there's the meek. And if you get that order, then it sort of falls into place. But, you know, we want our kids, certainly our adults, to memorize the Ten Commandments. I think it's wise for us to memorize a lot of different portions of Scripture, but it's certainly wise for us to memorize uh, these uh, Beatitudes. Chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus is speaking. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they shall revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray together. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray, Lord, that you'll continue to speak to our hearts from the Beatitudes. Lord, we certainly need these characteristics in our lives if we're going to be kingdom people, if we're going to be people who are ruled by you. And Lord, we come as people who are poor in spirit. Lord, we can do nothing apart from you. Lord, this morning, I can do nothing apart from you of any eternal value. And I surrender myself to you as I have done well before this hour. And I pray, oh God, that you will speak to us and speak through me and speak through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I need you to do something with me for just a few minutes this morning, and that is to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that dogs can talk. Now, I happen to know that they can because... I saw a commercial this past week, and a dog was at his vet, and he was telling the vet uh, what was wrong, and what were the symptoms, what was going on, and his lips were moving, and, and he was talking to his vet. So I, I know that dogs can talk, and you have to remember that I come from the generation that uh, was well familiar with uh, the famous Mr. Ed. And you know that Mr. Ed had conversations with Wilbur and Wilbur with Mr. Ed. So if in these next few minutes you just use your imagination and, and just imagine because this little illustration sort of leads us into the point that I want us to make today and where I want us to go today. I heard about a big dog that saw a little dog chasing his tail. And the big dog said to the little dog, why are you doing that? Well, the smaller dog said, well, I've been studying philosophy, and I believe that I've discovered the answer to the problems of the universe. I've discovered that a dog's deepest need is happiness. 
And I found that happiness lies in a dog's tail. That's why I'm chasing my tail. He continued, if I can just catch that tail, then I'll be a happy dog. That makes sense, doesn't it? This is a talking dog, right? Well, the old dog, who was much wiser than the little dog, said, I too have studied philosophy, and I've also thought and pondered about these things. And in some ways, I agree with you. I think it's a good thing for a dog to be happy, and I believe that to some degree, happiness lies in a dog's tail. However, I've made a discovery. The more I chase my tail, the more it runs away from me. But when I forget about chasing it and go about my business, it always comes after me. And aren't we thankful when we see a strange dog, especially coming toward us and his tail is wagging, right? It just comes along with him. I use that little story to tell you that the idea of the Beatitudes isn't for us to seek blessedness. That's like a dog chasing his tail. It's to understand that there are characteristics that God says need to be put into our lives and that in the practicing of those characteristics, what will come along with us, what will overtake us, is this happiness, this blessedness that God intends for us to experience. And so it's not a matter of us seeking the happiness. It's not a matter of us seeking the blessedness so much as it is a matter of seeking this quality of being poor in spirit or seeking the quality that we're studying today of being a person who mourns. So that when you get to chapter 5, verse 4, and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's telling you not how to seek blessedness. He's telling you the quality that you need that brings to you the comfort of God and causes you what comes along with it, causes you to be blessed in your life. Now, to be honest with you, when you hear that beatitude, blessed are those or blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, it sounds like an oxymoron. It sounds like a contradiction of terms. It sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? I mean, it's two things that don't seem to fit together, that don't seem to go with one another. To be blessed, meaning happiness, or to mourn. Those two just don't seem to fit together. And so we've got to do a little bit of investigation. We've got to figure out what it is that he's saying to us. Last week, I spent a good bit of time talking to you about what it means to be blessed. And I explained it to you. And I'm not going to go back through all of those things again. But let me just quickly tell you that to be blessed implies an inner satisfaction and sufficiency that does not depend on outward circumstances for happiness. It's an inner satisfaction, an inner contentedness, an inner sufficiency that no matter what the circumstances around you may be doing, it cannot take away from you that sense of that sufficiency, that satisfaction. It is to enjoy God's approval, and we all want that, don't we? It is to enjoy God's approval and the fullness of life that flows from Him. And I especially like that last part, the fullness of life that flows from him. That's the blessedness that we all want to experience that comes along with these qualities that are discussed in the Beatitudes. It overtakes us, these qualities 
that are found in the Beatitudes, that sense of satisfaction and sufficiency in God, that we have his approval and there's a fullness of our life, a fullness of his life that's flowing in us and flowing through us, such that when we use the word happiness, it really doesn't do justice to the idea of being blessed. And the reason is because we think of happiness more in terms of our circumstances or more in terms of happenstance. But this is about us abiding in him, in the Lord, and the Lord abiding in us, in his life flowing in us, and his life flowing through us so that it satisfies and it makes sufficient knowing that we have the approval of God even if we have nobody else's approval in our lives. And so it's not so much a paradox or an oxymoron or a contradiction when you think of it in those terms. Now, what we really need to talk about today is what does he mean when he says we're to mourn? That, that's the real question. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm thinking of a family today, members of our church, and they're laying to rest the body of this gentleman's mother this afternoon at Enon Cemetery. And our hearts will be with them, and they will be mourning, and they will be grieving. Is that what he's talking about? There was a family this past week uh, that laid to rest the body of their loved one in Point Pleasant, and they were grieving, and they were mourning. Is that what he means when he talks about this idea of mourning? Well, there are nine Greek verbs that are used in the New Testament that speak of grief in some form. But what I want you to know is that the word that he uses here, blessed are those who mourn, I want you to know that this is the strongest of the nine words. It's the most severe of the nine words. It describes the deepest sorrow that a person can have. The deepest sorrow. But on this occasion, it's not the deepest sorrow because of the death of a loved one or a friend or even the death of a dream or the death of a goal. Lonida, in their Greek lexicon, defines it this way. To mourn means to, means to experience sadness or grief as the result of depressing circumstances or the condition of persons. But then he goes on to qualify. They go on to qualify what they mean in chapter 5, verse 4. They write, the reference here is not to grieving or mourning for the dead, but rather sadness and grief because of wickedness and oppression. Sadness and grief because of wickedness and oppression. Many other scholars agree with this particular understanding of the word mourn. For instance, some of them say they mourn over sin and its consequences, whether their own sin or the sins of others. Still others say they mourn over sin and evil, whether in themselves, in the world around them, or in the church. Another says they grieve over personal sin, over social evil, and over oppression. So that when he says blessed, this inner satisfaction, this inner contentedness that comes from the life of God that's flowing through you and flowing in you, that brings to you a sense of happiness, not in the 
sense of our circumstances or happenstance, but because of we're abiding in him and he's abiding in us, it comes, he says, when we mourn over sin. It comes when we mourn over the effects of sin. In, in other words, he's telling us in this particular beatitude that we ought to be broken and mourn over the things that break the heart of God. We ought to be broken, and we ought to grieve over the things that break the heart of God, the things that Jesus had to come and take on himself and the penalty of them when he died on the cross of Calvary and shed his blood. Those things whether they're in ourselves or in others or in the society around us or the effects of those things, it ought to cause us to grieve. It ought to cause us to be broken. It ought to cause us to mourn. Um, in the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms, I have several that are my favorites, and I say that's my favorite and that's my favorite, but one of my favorites is is Psalm 119. It also happens to be the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. It's so rich and a lot of content there about the Word of God and about affliction and some of those kinds of things, but in Psalm 119, verse 136, here's a description of what Jesus was saying when he was talking about mourning. The psalmist says, rivers of water run down from my eyes. Because men do not keep your law. Rivers of water run down from my eyes because men do not keep your law. He sees something and he recognizes that it grieves the heart of God. And thus, because it grieves the heart of God, it grieves his heart. And He likens it to rivers of water, tears just streaming down my face because of sin and the effects of sin, because of the ignorance of his word or the lack of the practice of his word. It breaks my heart because it breaks the heart of God. Think about offending offending God. You know, all of you are my friends. I don't know you as well as I know others, but all of you are my friends. And when I offend one of you, it it hurts. It bothers me. I don't like to offend people. Others of you are around me a lot, and we know each other well, and we're able to do things together. And when I offend you, it bothers me even more deeply. But now, when I offend my family or I offend my wife, those that are the closest and the dearest to me in life, when I offend one of them, it causes the greatest amount of pain and sorrow in my own heart. And I'm sure it does in yours when you offend one of your family members as well. What are you saying to me? I'm saying that the closer we get to God and the better we know God, the more we are hurt by the things that hurt God, the more we are grieved by the things that grieve God. So that the reason we come to church services like this and we read our Bibles and we want to know who God is is so that we can know him better. And the better we know him, the more we will grieve over the things that grieve him and the more we will be broken over the things that break his heart. And that's what this beatitude is saying. Blessed 
are those who mourn over the sinfulness of themselves and others around them and the world in which we live and who are broken because it breaks the heart of God and it cost his son his very life. And this brokenness isn't to be a one-time kind of an event. When he talks about mourning here, he's emphasizing that it's to be something that happens frequently, sometimes often in the consequence of living out our lives, in the matter of going through the course of life. When we see things in ourselves and others that break the heart of God, our heart is broken. All of us are familiar with Martin Luther, the great reformer. Do you know what the very first line of his 95 thesis says? R.K. Hughes, who's an author and a pastor, writes, it is significant that the first of Martin Luther's famous 95 thesis states that the entire life is to be one of continuous repentance and contrition. One of continual repentance and contrition. That we live in such a way that when we see sin in our hearts, we see sin around us, that it breaks us because it breaks the heart of God. It offends us because it offends the heart of our God whose life is flowing in us and his life is flowing through us. And we don't want to do anything to offend that God. When was the last time that, that you mourned? over your own sins or the sins of the world in which we live? When was the last time you and I mourned? I confess it hasn't been nearly enough for me. Do we laugh when evil is portrayed on television or when it's portrayed in the theater? Do we laugh when we hear about someone doing evil? Do we laugh at jokes about ungodliness? Do we laugh at the perversions of biblical morality? Do we laugh at corrupt languages coming from the mouths, our mouths and the mouths of others? I, I don't know if I've lived in a day, I'm at, at a point in life, I don't think I've lived in a day when the perversity of speech, the cursing, is worse than it is today. To God, sin is no laughing matter. It's no laughing matter. It cost his son his life. And it ought to cause us to mourn. It's a reason for us to mourn when we see sin in our own hearts or we see it around us or we see it in the world or the effects of that sin. It ought to cause us to mourn. But you say, Pastor, surely that's one verse and that that's not really what he means for us to do. Well, yeah, it is. James chapter 4, listen to what James says. Verses 8 to 10. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now listen. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do you hear what he says? There's a time and there's a place for where to, when we're supposed to have laughter turned to mourning. When our joy should become gloom 
because we know what we see in our own lives or what we see in the lives of others is God is offended. God's heart is broken by what's going on and by what's happening. God is hurt by those things. The opposite is also discussed in the scripture where people are rejoicing in evil. In Proverbs chapter 2, he's talking about wisdom and in those who lack wisdom. And he comes to the end and he says, who rejoice? They rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked. That's the opposite of mourning. They rejoice in doing evil. They delight in the perversity of the wicked. Or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he's talking about those who were deceived, those who believed the lie. And he says they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Or in Romans chapter 1, you're familiar with Romans 1, aren't you? In Romans chapter 1, in the middle toward the end of the chapter, he talks about homosexuality. He talks about lesbianism. He talks about all kinds of moral perversions. And he says, God has given them up. God has given them up. And then he says, God has given them over. And then he gives a long list of more than 20 specific sins that are listed. And he comes to the end of that list. And he says, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's the opposite of mourning. That's the opposite of the grief that he's talking about. If you want to see this morning that I'm talking about, you can see it from a story that Jesus tells about the publican and the tax collector. The publican comes to pray, as does the tax collector, and the publican distances himself from everybody else, and he's praying, you know, I'm glad I'm not like all these other people that are here praying. I'm glad that I'm so much better than everybody else, and I'm not like that tax collector down there, Lord, I'm so glad that I am who I am and you're so lucky to have me. But what's the tax collector doing? The tax collector won't even lift up his head. He's beating on his chest and he's crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, which of those two men do you think went to his house justified? That's a pretty easy answer, isn't it? It's like that commercial where that kid's choosing Charles Barkley. That's, that's a pretty, I mean, out of four or five people are, that are all children, they choose Charles Barkley to be on their basketball team. That's a pretty smart choice. Yeah, that's, that's the one. The, the one who's beating his chest, who's mourning over his sin, that's the one who goes home justified. And then what does Jesus say about that? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Will be exalted. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that there ought to be that sense of mourning, that sense of grieving when we see sins in our own lives or we see sins around us or we see sins in the world or the effects of those sins in the world, it ought to grieve us. It ought to wound us because it wounds the heart of God. It ought to break us because it breaks the heart of God. We ought to be doing, if it's not our sins, we ought to be doing what Nehemiah did or what Ezra did or what Daniel did or what others, Moses, did when they were crying out on behalf of their nation and they were praying on behalf of their nation, Oh God, you see our sins, forgive us. We have broken your law. 
We haven't obeyed what you've told us to do. There's rivers of water that are running down our cheeks. Now, I want to stop at this moment, and I want to tell you that that doesn't mean that that's the way we live every moment of every day of our lives. I mean, there's a place for laughter. The reality is there's a lot of people who don't ever want to mourn. They don't want to grieve. They just want to play. They just want to have fun. They just want to be entertained. They just want to have all the good things in life. And there's a place for all of those things. I'm not talking about walking around with a long face or tears always on your face or slumping your shoulders and acting miserable. That's not what we're talking about. There's a time to have fun. There's a time to laugh. I mean, even Solomon said what? He said that laughter is good like a medicine. A merry heart does good like medicine. He said in Ecclesiastes, he said, there's a time to laugh. And there's a time to mourn. But I'm afraid that we live in a world today, especially in our churches, where we spend a lot of time laughing and playing and being entertained and not nearly enough time mourning over the things that grieve the heart of God. What I want to do for the next few minutes is rather than talk about all of these sins and list them all out and tell you why they're all bad and why you ought to not do these things and why you ought to grieve over this long list. Instead of doing that, I want to do something that's altogether different. Because here's what I believe. I believe if you see God rightly, then you'll see yourself rightly and the world around you rightly. If I can help you to see the truth about God, it's called theology. If I can help you to see the truth about God, and I can't take you into all of the truth there is about God in this service that we have together, but if I can just help you to see him exalted as he is exalted, it'll change the way you see yourself. And the more you see God, the more you'll see yourself and those around you, and the things that you know break the heart of God will begin to break your own heart. He's a well-known theologian. He passed away just a few years ago. His name is J.I. Packer. He writes, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are. Weak, inadequate, ineffective, a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, in power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal, infinite, and almighty. He has us in his hands. We never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows toward them. Now listen, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his majesty and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. But do you know what we've done? We've done very much what they do or what's described in Romans chapter 1. We've taken God and we've manipulated God into what we want him to be so that he's more relatable to us. 
We're all concerned about making sure that we relate to God and God relates to me. But the reality is what we really need to be doing is seeing God for who he really is. I want to do that with you for just a few moments. Look back for a moment at Psalm 139. And I can't take you through all of the qualities of God, but I want you to look with me at a couple of passages of Scripture. And I want you to see God. And when you see God exalted and you see God high and lifted up, then I want you to see yourselves and see the world around you and see that if it offends your God, that it ought to offend you. If it hurts your God, that it ought to hurt you. If it grieves your God, it ought to grieve you and it ought to grieve me. In Psalm 139, we see that there's no limits to the knowledge of God about any person. Notice verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known my sitting down and my rising up. That means all of my actions and all of my movements, God knows every one of them. You understand my thought afar off. That is all that goes on in my mind. Whether you give expression to it or not, God knows. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. That means all my habits and all my plans and all my aims and all my desires. God knows about all of those things. Verse 4, for there is not a word on my tongue, whether it's spoken or it's just meditated. But behold, O Lord, you know it all together. But then he moves from what God knows about us to this whole matter of his presence. You can't get away from God. He is not only all-knowing, he is all-present everywhere. He goes on in verse 5, You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high or it's high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, that's up into the sky, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, that's the underworld, behold, you were there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I could be a seabird and I could fly as far out as I could possibly go where you couldn't see land anywhere, he says, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness you know, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to see it. I did it in the darkness of the night. Surely the darkness shall follow me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Do you get what he's saying? Do you hear what the psalmist is saying? We've got a little God who doesn't know everything and doesn't see everything and isn't everywhere when the reality is that we serve an omniscient, omnipresent God who is everywhere at the same time. Now, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. When you read Isaiah chapter 40, I want you to be reminded that he's writing to people that have been held in captivity. He's writing to people who have undergone some terrible things in life. They're discouraged and they're despondent and they're depressed. 
They're, they're wondering what's going to happen to them and will they ever get to go back to their land. But I want you to look at how he describes the tasks that God does first. Verse 12, he says, speaking of God, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I mean, he doesn't even take his whole hand. He can hold all the waters just, I mean, just in the little middle of his hand. Or measured heaven with a span. I mean, God just says, you know, it's not even this big to God, the universe we live in, the galaxy that we live in. I mean, it's not even that big to God. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. I mean, who can measure the dust or the dirt of the earth? I mean, can you pick up a grain of sand and count all the grains of sand, let alone know how much dirt there is in this earth? He says, or weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Now, in West Virginia, that's a lot of hills. That's a lot of mountains. We can't weigh those mountains in scales, but you know what? God is bigger than all of those things. Look at all he's done. All of that is the creation of God. Notice how God is compared to the nations, their, their relationship to him in verse 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. And are counted, I like that, as a drop in a bucket. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. In other words, when it comes to the nations, God just, he just, you know. Look, he, li he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering, for offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. I mean, who is greater than the greatest nations on the planet? God is. As a matter of fact, he's greater than all the nations put together on the planet. Look at the world in its, in its size in, in relationship to God in verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who's, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Do you get it? I mean, this entire creation, every aspect of it is tiny and insignificant in comparison to the greatness of God. Or look at the rulers in their relationship to God. Verse 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He brings them to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless, whether it's Sennacherib or it's Nebuchadnezzar or it's Alexander or it's Napoleon or it's Hitler or it's our own government. None of them are greater than God. And God is greater than all of them put together. And if you don't think God's big enough yet, and you don't see God as you ought to be seeing God, look at verse 26. He says, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created, notice the word, created these things. Let me just stop here and take an aside. I believe God created in six literal days all that there is. I don't believe in evolution. I don't believe in theistic evolution. There is no scientist who was there at the beginning to observe it. There is no way they can put it in a test tube and test it or reproduce it. All they can do is theorize about it. But they weren't there. They can't reproduce it. 
A man came to me a few years ago and he didn't believe what I believe about creation and he said, uh, you realize that you're creating uh, for yourself intellectual or you're causing for yourself intellectual suicide. And I didn't respond this way, but I thought to myself internally, yes, but you are causing to yourself theological suicide. This is not a salvation issue. I'm not suggesting people who don't believe in six days of creation that they aren't saved, seven days counting the day of rest, that they aren't saved. But I'm just telling you, you're going to have to throw away, you're going to have to throw away vast portions of your Bible. Scientists are limited by the laws of nature and science. God is greater than the laws of nature and science. Notice what he says, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Who put the stars in place? He not only put them in place, he named them all, and he's never lost a one. I don't know if you get what he's saying. You you Israelites that are in captivity and you're depressed and you're despondent and you're discouraged, it's because you're looking at your circumstances And you're seeing yourself small in the presence of those circumstances rather than looking at God who is omniscient, who is omnipresent, uh, who is omnipotent. This God who holds it all in his hand, this God who can measure anything, and it doesn't even take this much for him to be able to measure it all. That's the God we serve. Thus he asks some questions in verse 25. He says, there's none as great as God. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. And he says, no one can hide from God. In verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Oh, my way is hidden from the Lord. And my just claim is passed over by my God. Nobody sees it. And no one should be faithless toward God. Verse 28 Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, his understanding is unsearchable? I mean, if this God is so great, there's no reason for us not to trust him, right? Do you see what I'm telling you? We have so manipulated God and brought God down to what we want him to be and said, God, you got to fit within my box so I can relate to you. And in the process, we've lost the heart of God and we've lost the grief that God feels over the sins that we commit and the sins of others. You don't believe that? Isaiah chapter 6, just find your place. Isaiah chapter 6. Notice Isaiah, what he he says. He's talking about this great God, this awesome God that you can't explain or fully understand, who's beyond man's ability to reason. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two, face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, here comes the morning when he sees God properly. Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see what he says? I see God for who he really is. And then I see myself and my sinfulness for what it really is. Woe is me. And what does God do when you come to that place? of that kind of mourning where you grieve over your own sin, you grieve over the sins of this world, you grieve over the effects of sin. Look at it, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the, with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. God comforts. God comforts. It's not until we grieve. It's not until we mourn our own sins. It's not until we grieve and mourn over those things that break the heart of God that we come to see in our own hearts a brokenness about our own sinfulness and our own wickedness. Some Christians spend most of their lives trying to find happiness. They have their psychologist who will numb their neurosis. They have counselors who will absolve them of all guilt. They have doctors who will sedate their pain. They have insurance agents to alleviate their worries. And at death, they have the mortuary to beautify them for burial. But what they really need, what they really need to do is to mourn over their sins and the sins of our world. I want to finish with an illustration, if I can do that. It comes from 1983. This is an article that appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times, 1983. The title of the article was, There is one thing worse than sin. There is one thing worse than sin. And in it, Dr. Thomas F. Reeser compared the, the, the uh, equally reprehensible sins of two U.S. congressmen, Congressman Daniel Crane and Congressman Gerald Stubbs. Both had been censured by the House of Representatives. Daniel Crane for having sexual relations with a 17-year-old female page. And Gerald Studs for having relations with a 17-year-old male, Page. Reeser observed, and I quote, Being censured is the only thing Crane and Studs have in common. The nation got a glimmer of their philosophical differences when Crane admitted tearfully to his district, then to the full house, that he broke the laws of God in man, casting a vote for his own censure, facing the House of Representatives as the Speaker announced the tally. 
Gerald Studs, in contrast, acknowledged he was gay in a dramatic speech to the house, then defended the relationship with the page as mutual and voluntary. He noted that he had abided by the age of consent and said the relationship didn't warrant the attention or action of the house. Studs voted present on the censure and heard the verdict from the speaker with his back turned to the House of Representatives. Dr. Reeser goes on in this article and he compares the moral positions of these two men and he doesn't let either man off for his sin. He's not excusing the sin of either of them, but then he concludes the article this way. But there's one consolation for Daniel Crane. His philosophy teaches that there is one thing worse than sin. That is the denial of sin, which makes forgiveness impossible. Which makes forgiveness impossible. Unless we're willing to grieve, unless we're willing to mourn, unless we're willing to be broken over the things that break the heart of God, we will never know the comfort of God coming to us and thus never experience the blessed life that God wants us to have. We have to be a people who realize that God is offended by sin. And the closer you get to God, the more those sins will offend you as well. But there's two things. Number one, I want you to know that our sins can be forgiven. If you're willing to mourn over them, if you're willing to grieve about them, if you're willing to say, oh God, this is what you say it is, you don't hear sermons like this in very many churches anymore. We don't call it sin anymore. It was a mistake. We take God and we bring him down to what we want him to be. We don't talk about the moral sins of our day. We take God and we bring him down and fashion him like we want him to be. We don't just take God for who the Bible says he is and see God rightly and thus see ourselves rightly and fall on our faces to grieve and to mourn and to beat on our chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But when you grieve over your sins and you mourn over them, you don't have to go get medicated for them. You don't have to go have a counselor tell you, it's okay, just forget about it, move on. You'll deal with it, and God will come to you, and God will comfort you. Number two, first, our sins can be forgiven. And number two, there's a better world that's coming. Aren't you thankful? There's a better world that's coming. There's a day that's yet to come when there'll be peace on earth and goodwill toward man. And sin won't be rampant. And sin can be confessed and forgiven today. But it won't be rampant. Righteousness will rule. There's the words I'm looking for. Righteousness will rule in that day. Listen to it. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Now listen, God himself 
will be with them and be their God. And God himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, the longer I live, the more I look forward to that day. When God wipes the tears away and says, you don't have to grieve and mourn anymore.